You know, right now I think there's a lot of people sitting there wondering, where do explosives take us 20 or 30 years from now? What steps are we going to take to be prepared for that? And what are going to be the major changes we're going to have to accommodate? And, you know, I think there's quite a few different ways to approach this. Obviously, there's things like automation uh, and probably getting rid of a lot of the people in the blast crew and introducing artificial intelligence. But really, the next innovation is going to come in green explosives. We're seeing this all over the world, and this is practically the new arms race in who can get the cleanest, greenest, most powerful explosive that can be put onto the marketplace and sold to consumers to ensure that they can keep fumes low, they can keep people protected, and they can abide by the upcoming environmental regulations that we already see taking root in some of the first world countries around today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to AcademyBlasting.tv. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Konya, and I'm glad to be here with you guys today talking about one of my favorite topics, explosives. Today, we're going to be looking at a very special perspective from the explosives industry. We'll be going through and talking about what the upcoming innovations in explosives will be in the next 10, 15, 20 years for the rock blasting industry. So I'll mention right now we're going to keep our focus limited here and we're going to be looking at the things that construction projects and mining projects are going to use. Obviously we have to mention that there's going to be a lot of great advances in pyrotechnics, propellants, and military side of things. I think there's going to be a huge push coming in space explosives. We're starting to see with the U.S. developing the Space Force and other countries pushing into that final frontier uh, a lot of different types of innovations coming in that realm, and space explosives are going to be one of those. But today, it's all about breaking rock. Now, in order to understand sort of where we come from, let's just take a brief overview at the history of rock-breaking explosives. And I'm actually going to jump back a little bit before this. We're going to go back to about 400 B.C., and during this time period, there wasn't yet real energetic materials. And warfare was always a, uh, a big part of society back in the day. And on one day, there was 300 men rowing a longboat, ready to go into battle against their enemy. As they rowed faster and faster, getting closer and closer, their enemy prepared the typical weapons of war. Bow and arrow. Or ramming the other boats. See, back in the day, most naval warfare was done with large uh, structures placed on the front of the boat, and you'd row at a high speed into an enemy vessel and cause it to crack or to break. Well, on this day, something very unique happened. As the boats rowed, they started forming circular formations around the enemy, and a black liquid came out of the boat. Soon, an archer fired a burning arrow into this black liquid, and the ocean lit ablaze. This was the new warfare. And we'd see this type of advancement in military technology continue forward until about 600 AD, almost a thousand years later, when Greek fire took over the world in naval, on land, and siege warfare. Now, Greek fire was different. It wasn't just a burning uh, substance that was placed down on the ground and lit on fire. 
Instead, it was something that would react, some say it reacted with the water, or it reacted when it was released, to throw flames at the enemy. This is really one of the first energetic materials, and we see the main driver of invention here was warfare. Now, as we continue on, there's many folklores about black powder. Some say that the Chinese invented it in about 200 BC for fireworks. Others talk about as early as 900 BC for medicine and medicinal purposes. Not the black powder we see today, but some substitutes and some basic formulations similar to what we have today. What we know for sure is the Chinese by 900 AD were using this in their pyrotechnics. And by 1300, it was already being used throughout Asia and Europe in warfare. It was being used for gunpowder. Now this is important because after black powder, which took about 300 years to develop from a military explosive to a actual mining explosive when the first blast was fired in 1627, after that substance, almost all of the remaining explosives we've seen in history in the rock blasting industry were developed specifically for the rock blasting industry. And you have to understand, rock blasting uses completely different principles than other areas. And so when we talk about explosives in this industry, we have to account for a few major things. And one of those being the gas volume that's produced. We know that's how the majority of the rock breaks in a blast is from the gas volume. We also have to account for the total energy, the safety, the reliability, the ease of manufacturing, and the low cost. In countries like the United States, we use four to six billion pounds of explosives a year. And almost all of that is from anfos and emulsions in the rock blasting industry. So let's fast forward in time. We know there were great inventions by those like Sobrero, who invented nitroglycerin, and later Alfred Nobel, who took that nitroglycerin from his teacher, Sobrero, and turned it into dynamite. But really, the, the major explosives we still use today, while, and while dynamite still used somewhat, it's just not as common as anfos and emulsions. The major development of those came in the 1950s. And I'd like to tell you the story because they're two incredibly, uh, they're, they're two incredible stories that are often forgotten from the discussions. The first is that of water gels or slurries, the predecessor to emulsions. See, there was an, a professor by the name of Dr. Melvin Cook, and he had a crazy idea for his day. Dr. Cook wanted to add water to explosives, and this was unheard of. He was actually laughed at at conferences by his peers because whoever thought of adding water to explosives? It didn't produce any uh, more energy in the product, and it was something that was known at the time to desensitize many of the different explosives. Well, Dr. Cook pressed on, and what he did was he took TNT and ground it up finely, mixed it with water, and created a pumpable explosive product. In order to keep the TNT in place, he added a few other agents that would gum this product, and he invented the first water gel explosives. He also founded the Irico Powder Company, and this is how he became uh, very well known in the industry. He's also written some great books on explosive and was considered 
one of the top minds in explosives engineering, especially in the 1950s and 60s. Now, you also have to think about the story of ANFO. You see, ANFO was invented by a guy named Bob Acri, and he worked at the Cleveland Cliff Collieries in Linton, Indiana. He was a mine supervisor, and he had heard about all of these explosions that were happening with the major vessels transporting ammonium nitrate, including things like the Texas City disaster. Now, ammonium nitrate in itself is a very poor explosive. We need extremely large amounts. You'd need a borehole that's half a meter or about one and a half feet in diameter in order to even begin to get this substance to go off. But when you mix fuel with it, it becomes a very powerful explosive. And so Bob Acri decided he was going to start experimenting with this explosive product. And so he went and he actually bought a cement mixer and put it out right behind his office. And he'd purchase ammonium nitrate fertilizer at the time, put it into the cement mixer, and he'd mix it with various different things to try to get it to detonate. Some of his uh, reported property or reported chemicals were molasses. And he said molasses actually worked great. The only problem was every bee in the county was surrounding his mixer by the time he was done making it. Now, you see, Bob was a practical guy. He didn't want to do small-scale tests and minute research. What he aimed to do was full-scale blasts. And so he would take the product he made and load entire boreholes in the middle of his pit during his normal blasts, fire it, and see how it performed. Well, eventually, he found out that by mixing coal fines in with the ammonium nitrate, he could make a good explosive product for the mining industry. Now, at this time, coal fines were waste product. We burned lump coal in the power plants, and so there was no use for fine coal powder, unlike today. And so Bob went and he'd take waste product, add it to the ammonium nitrate, and make a new explosive product for an extremely cheap price point. Now, this was so successful that the other mines in the area eventually started asking Bob if he could go and make them some. And he tried. The big problem was when transporting the ammonium nitrate and coal dust, they would separate because the large difference in the size of the products. So they ended up finding that fuel oil could replace coal dust and stop this separation problem. And if you know the story, what many sites started to do was they'd buy ammonium nitrate, they'd cut the top of the bag, pour in the fuel oil, let it sit, load it into the borehole later. Other sites would just fill a borehole with ammonium nitrate, pour the fuel right on top, and let that sleep or sit and wait until it would oil properly. Now today, both of these industries have developed. We now have modern cutting-edge emulsions. We can harden them. We can make them cap or booster sensitive. We can sensitize them with microspheres or chemical gassing. We can change the total energy of our emulsion, change the diameter they function in. We have a lot more, a lot better understanding of slurry explosives and particularly this new emulsion. Also, emulsion does not require a high explosive, so it's an extremely safe product for the industry. ANFO today is typically manufactured 
by large manufacturing companies or explosive distributors. And it's now sold to the market to avoid the need for mines to make it themselves. It's typically a higher quality product than the mines mixing it themselves. And again, it's an extraordinarily safe product. We've had people that have used these products for 30, 40, 50 years and have no reported problems. You know, with dynamite, you'd get the nitroglycerin headaches. But with emulsions, with water gels, with ANFO, we don't have these safety problems or health hazards, we can call them. And so this brings up an important question. And I think there's a lot of people that are sitting out there wondering 10, 20, 30 years from now, where do explosives take us? What's the future? And, you know, we can talk about automation and explosives, but I think that's even farther out is automating uh, the loading of explosives. I think really the next big push in explosives is going to become green explosives. And right now, many people believe we're sitting on the new arms race in who can develop safe green explosives first. Now you have to first think about what is a green explosive? Well, the basis of green explosives actually comes from a topic known as green chemistry. Now, the American Chemical Society puts out a listing of 12 major objectives. I'm just going to define it for you in three simple points. First, reduce the toxicity of process chemicals and the final product. Second, minimize the waste product. And third, develop energy-sustaining processes. Now, if you think about explosives today, they almost always already hit those points. Our ingredients are typically non-toxic. We don't require hazmat suits to work in or around them. The end product is safe. Many people are working around this all their lives. No protection uh, in a hazmat suit or anything like that. No problem. You can touch this stuff with your skin and emulsion and info aren't going to damage you, hurt you. They don't present a health hazard. It's already a pretty energy-sustaining process. For something like ANFO, we actually use very little energy to manufacture the final product. And with an emulsion, the energy used, when it's used in the right place, is practically directly proportional to either the stability in shelf life or the power output. And I'll give you an example. Let's say we're making an emulsion with a static single mixer system. It doesn't require much energy to push that emulsion through. That may be how we make a bulk emulsion, for example. But we know the shelf life is going to be short. And this is because the micelle size in that emulsion is large and randomly distributed. We don't have all the same sizing there. On top of that, it's hard to get powerful emulsions just based on the requirements to break down that micelle to create small enough bubbles for increased amounts of ammonium nitrate. Let's say we go to a dual static mixer system. So we have two mixers, neither of them are moving, neither of them are motorized, and we're just pumping the emulsion through them relying on shearing. That provides us better than a single mixer system. But it also requires more power. Now let's say we go to some of the top industry standards today, the high shear, high velocity mixer systems. These take up much more power than a static system, but they produce a more stable, more reliable, longer shelf life, 
and possibly more powerful emulsion depending on the actual formulations of that product. So no, all emulsion is not exactly the same. There are differences not only in formulation, but in manufacturing principles. And the energy put in to manufacturing it is linked to the final product's energy. So we have to define new methods then of what green explosives truly are because explosives actually hit many of these green chemistry principles. Now, in order to do this, we have to do something else. We have to make a way for people to truly understand and evaluate the differences in explosives. Now, this can't be based on theoretical values. For example, ANFO is 5.7% fuel oil, theoretically. And ideally, that produces the lowest amount of toxic fumes. The problem is, that's not what happens in practice. And through my consulting experience all over the world, this is something that's a base point on my checklist. I always look for it. And what we see is we normally have low oil content. I'll give you some examples. In the Middle East, I've typically tested around 3% oil content. South America, some of the projects down there are 3.6% or lower. In an underground operation I was just in, two months ago in the USA, 5% oil, again, below that 5.7. And in a site I was at in Canada about six months ago, they had less than 4% oil and they had visible red NOx produced from the blast that drifted down the valleyway. Now these are problems, but we know they occur. So we can't just look at a theoretical approximation and say ANFO is always going to be 5.7% because a mixture of things can change that. And one of them, something that the end consumer buys, is improperly manufactured explosives. And so we need to make sure we are accounting for these inaccuracies. Now, how can we actually do this? One of the things I've proposed in the past is a fume rating system. Now, the way this works is by verifying and testing actual field-delivered explosives. So this would mean your ANFO for a company would be tested sporadically by a third party when it's actually in the field. As a blaster is getting ready to put it in the hole, a sample is taken and by a third party upon random inspection and tested. Now, this will give, for ANFO, for example, the oil content. And we can now determine the theoretical gases that will be produced from that actually made ANFO. We can then take an average over a quarter, a year, for each specific product produced by different companies and then compare the actual field scent averages for fume ratings. Now, this is a big change, but it's something that we have to have a way to be able to compare these things if we're ever going to be able to truly discuss, truly manufacture, and truly get any end consumer to purchase green explosive products. Now, the way this fume rating system would work is we could take the kilograms of set toxic fumes, uh, primarily NOxes. We could also look at carbon monoxides as well. And maybe we split these up into each individual gas. And we 
take that as a ratio to the kilograms of explosives. So how many kilograms of nitrous oxides does one kilogram of this explosive produce? Now we have a way for people to actually evaluate the difference between explosive based on these fume ratings. Eventually, when systems come out where drones can fly in after a blast and detect the fumes, that'll probably be the best route to go on for this type of analysis. And this is important because in many areas of the world today, throughout Europe, throughout the U.S., we're starting to see changes taking place to environmental regulation, limiting the amount of toxic fumes allowed to be produced from mining. Hey guys, this is Dr. Anthony Konya, and we're going to take a quick pause in the podcast. We'll continue after a short break, but I want to let you guys know we've just launched a new and exciting 100% online course called The Basics of Blasting. It's perfect for the new blaster that's looking to get some background experience on the industry or the experienced blaster looking to pick up some of the new and modern changes. We talk about things like violence factor, economic priming, and optimizing the choice of explosives and drilling equipment on site. It's a four-hour course available exclusively at academyblasting.com right now. So make sure you guys check it out. Also, for the blasters in the USA that are listening, we do uh, have credit for numerous different states' blasters licensing. So if you're looking for continuing education, this counts. Make sure you check it out, academyblasting.com. And now we'll head back to the podcast. Now, another important parameter that's going to be coming up much faster than I think most people realize is the leaching of nitrates when we sleep boreholes. I do a lot of work consulting up in Canada, and there they have some large metallurgical coal mines out in the West. And one of the biggest problems that all these mines face is that they have to sleep explosives for five, seven, ten days, and they're working on revising these SOPs, but by not sleeping explosives, they have significant cost. They have cost of smaller shots, which leads to additional shutdowns, which leads to lower utilization of their expensive shovels and trucks and equipment and operators. They So they need to end up looking at that, and right now they have to compare that to the cost of actually purifying waters that have nitrates in them. So most of these sites, they have large uh, filtration plants that sometimes are billions of dollars to construct, especially when they have multiple mines in one area and they have one place they're pulling from. And these plants pull in water, they filter out the nitrates, and they re-release the water further downstream in order to control their total uh, nitrate content they're putting out into the environment. And so that's another important parameter that we can have here. It's what I've called a leach rating. And this is a fairly simple test where we can take emulsion explosives because ANFOs can't function in water. So we take the various different emulsion explosives. We put them both in still or static water and we monitor that the nitrate content of that water at one hour, at six hours, 12 hours, one day, five days, 10 days to determine a curve of how much nitrate is leached and we test this in static water where we're actually moving water across that emulsion column at a certain standardized rate and we can then test products under this and provide mines like this where in Canada this is now environmental regulation we can provide them with the ability to 
actually compare different products to decide what is going to be best for them and most economical for them. This also creates an entirely different price point in the explosive marketplace because what we'll see if manufacturers can do this is they'll start to differentiate their product. Right now, a lot of the marketplace is competing on price, and this actually offers a huge window for product differentiation instead of just low-cost strategy. So this will be something I think that we're going to see in the near future here. I know a lot of the Canadian mines are pushing for it. There's been talks that this is going to be implemented in Europe, in the U.S. I've heard some people mention possibly Australia and certain other countries around the world that are working on developing, especially towards environmental conscientiousness. And with these two properties, we now give explosive chemists and groups looking into different green civil explosives the ability to actually monitor and determine what their explosives need to do and how to do them. But we're missing two of probably the most important part of any development in green explosives. The first part is safety. Explosives are an inherently different beast than normal chemical processes. And safety is and must always remain the top priority in explosive development because the effects of not having safe manufacturing safe transportation, and safe handling are astronomical. We cannot afford to go backwards on this. So any explosive products, any green explosives that we want to see launched to the industry must meet or exceed today's product standards. For example, this is one of the major problems that happens with uh, hydrogen peroxide. A lot of people are looking into trying to replace oxidizers and use hydrogen peroxide. But it is more dangerous in a concentrated form, especially for manufacturing, than ammonium nitrate is. And so we cannot afford to have any type of manufacturing process that may lead to something going wrong, especially in an explosives plant. We went through these problems in the 1900s and late 1800s with dynamite, nitroglycerins, and even water gels with monomethylamine nitrate accidents. And so we really need to ensure that we keep, at minimum, the safety standards we already have established in order for green explosives to stay. The next thing we have to look at is explosive performance. Now, performance of explosives isn't just, does it go bang? It is, what is the actual work energy? Not wasted energy, but true work energy per dollar spent. Really, when we're buying a certain weight of ANFO or a certain weight of emulsion, we're looking at how much energy does the explosive provide. And so we need to start discussing explosives in terms of work energy per dollar or per whatever currency the marketplace is working in. So let me give you an example. Let's say we have two explosives, explosive A and explosive B. Now, explosive A has 80 percent of the energy of explosive B. But the overall cost when you include initiation, drilling, everything is 50% compared to explosive B. Which product is better? It would actually be explosive A because the cost is well lower than the actual decrease in energy. So we need to consider both 
the total work energy and the cost in this performance category. The real question then becomes in this discussion of green explosives is when being introduced to the realm of civil explosives, will we understand and sacrifice some performance? Now, in other marketplaces, we can't do this. For example, in the space industry, if we have an, a green energetic material or a green propellant, that's 80 or 90% of the efficiency of a typical standard propellant. That rocket will probably not take off. You have to understand the thrust is extremely important from these propellants and the fuel in a rocket makes up 80 to 90 or greater percent of the total weight. So just decreasing thrust by two, three, four percent can mean that that rocket will not make it to its intended location. A 10, 20% decrease may mean that that rocket can never truly fly. So in an area like rocketry, we cannot afford to replace a good energetic material with a lower performing green alternative. But in rock blasting, the story may be different. And so the question then becomes, will the civilian marketplace tolerate decreased performance? So either increased cost or uh, same cost, but worse performance. And that's going to be the big question that's going to be answered. And that's what's got to be on everybody's mind as these green explosives are going to be developed, especially when there starts to occur regulatory incentives, which we're already seeing being debated or being implemented. So this is the big question for the next 10, 15, 20 years. What about long term? Well, I think long term, what we're going to see is a switch to full automation of most blast patterns. For example, let's say you're at a large copper mine. We have an autonomous drill that can drill those holes. We can have a drone fly and pinpoint exactly where those holes are. The major hang up right now is in the initiation system. It's hard to prime and load a hole autonomously. And there's a lot of connections that need to be made on the bench. But what happens if these are eliminated? For example, we are now starting to see wireless blasting caps being introduced. What would stop a machine from putting this blasting cap into the borehole, this wireless cap into the borehole, pumping explosives in on top of that, and then stemming it or using an automated small loader to stem it. And I think this is where 30, 40, 50 years from now we're going to go. And in a future podcast episode, we'll talk more about these wireless blasting caps. But that's one of the major improvements that they grant. They are more expensive. But can the cost be justified if we're talking about using artificial intelligence system and autonomous loading techniques to load and stem our blast holes. Now we're talking about engineers sitting in an office place, controlling fleets of drilling equipment and of autonomous loaders. I think that is one of the major areas the future of the drilling and blasting industry is heading. 
Alright guys, so that's the end of this episode of AcademyBlasting.tv. Thank you for following along and we're glad to have you here. If you want to talk about this more in depth, I've recently published a thing on this on LinkedIn. It's a full article on green explosives. It goes into some of the details that were done here and what the industry needs to see to advance into the future. You can find that by going to Academy Blasting on LinkedIn. Also, if you're listening to us on Apple, Stitcher, or Spotify, make sure you subscribe to get the latest shows delivered to you and rate it, give us a five-star rating. It really helps other people find us. If you're watching this on our website, academyblasting.tv, make sure to scroll down and enter your email into that subscribe box. This way you'll be notified in your email every time a new episode is launched and you can stay up to date on all the latest news and industry experts in this world. Thanks again for following along. This is Dr. Anthony Konya with academyblasting.com signing off.